and welcome to episode 77 of the Night Gary podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about you can't get help like that anymore. It is the second story from episode 21 of season 2. It's original teleplay written by Rod Serling and directed by Jeff Corey. Offered to you now an item having to do with labour and management. An employment office, where is offered a collection of potential employees whose skills are unique. For in addition to their loyalty, industriousness, punctuality, and impeccable cleanliness, they also run at least 100,000 miles without a lube and an oil change. It's no wonder we call this one, you can't get help like that anymore. We're in a company called Robot Aids Inc. And uh, a gentleman called Malcolm, Malcolm Happel, is leading a young couple around uh, their, their building and, and, and trying to basically show uh, what they do. And what they do is they create robots, robots to help around the home. You can have your own robot butler or robot maid or a chauffeur or a nurse. And all these uh, robots are placed behind glass as if mere mannequins rather than something slightly more more than that really to be fair because these these they although they are robots they look and act like people but they're not really people they can't be i mean these are after all just just machines and they're not clever enough to be able to have you know to to form opinions they're there to sweep floors to to clean to clean carpets while uh while Malcolm is showing this couple around, he's interrupted by a Dr. Kessler, who's played by Seven Darden. Uh, Kessler is concerned. He's concerned because one of his products, one of his, one of his robots, has been very badly damaged. Its fingers have been broken. An arm has been torn off. Its head caved in at the back. It's, be, it's basically been more than just torch. It's been vandalised to an extent, but, but ripped apart. Kessler is extremely angry about this. He's, he's incredibly angry. He sees it as sadism. Sadism by the young couple that owned it, the Fultons. And Fulton, uh, Mr. Fulton was played by Broderick Crawford and Mrs. Fulton, uh, Cloris Leachman. And th- this couple have decimated this, uh, this, this, poor, this poor robot. And Malcolm's very much like... It doesn't matter. It's just a machine. Why are you getting so riled up by it? But for Dr. Kessler, it's more than that. He's concerned. He's saying that they're starting to develop survival instincts and methods. And while initially they just show some characteristics, by the end of it, they show far more than that. And are showing signs of real life rather than just the fake program life that they've been given. And as he points out, the day that that happens properly is probably the day you need to phone up the Fultons and tell them to take out their their anger on something else. Because when that day arrives, they'll be far more likely to fight back. It's later on, and we're in the Fulton residence. And Mr. Fulton is busy perving over Model 931, who is a maid played by Lana Wood and um, he's leech, he's leeching and he's being horrible and clawing and un- unpleasant and 
Mrs. Fulton, unsurprisingly perhaps, considering the fact that it's blatantly obvious that Mr. Fulton wants a bit of nookie with the robot maid, decides that she's had enough and begins to verbally attack the, uh, the maid. And things increasingly become violent as the maid is so passive, but then finally reaches a certain point where she decides she has to fight back. Now, shall I continue to clean up the room, or what is your pleasure? My pleasure is to deactivate you for good. Mrs. Fulton, you pointed out that my predecessor was incapable of survival here. I must warn you, so long as I am activated, I shall defend myself against destruction. What's that? I shall not allow you to destroy me. You shall not allow us. Let me tell you, Miss 931, or whatever your name is. It's about five seconds away for a scrappy. Please, Mrs. Fulton, I have no desire to hurt, no wish to give pain, but I must survive. And so you shall, dearie. Just long enough to wish you'd never been built. We return back to the uh, Robot AIDS factory. There is a slightly more new and improved version of Dr. Kessler, who informs somebody that they will no longer be selling any more, uh, ro- any more of their robots uh, to the public uh, as, they, as they have new developments. Behind him, other robots build more, and it appears that they're slowly trying to build an army. He meets with the maid, Lana Wood, and they discuss what's happening and as they walk past we see versions of Dr. Kessler, Malcolm Hampel and of course the Fultons all effectively stuffed and mounted into the glass cages now no more than uh, dead relics uh, trophies almost for our new robot overlords as it becomes increasingly apparent that they're not just making a grab for freedom but they're making a grab for dominance. Is everything all right? Everything functioning well. How very odd. The ingeniousness of man, his cleverness, the paragon of animals, and yet his incredible Amazing stupidity. There was an English writer, Samuel Butler. He wrote a book called Erewhon. And there's a line in it. There is no security against the ultimate development of mechanical consciousness. In the fact of machines possessing little consciousness now. Even a potato in a dark cellar has a certain low cunning about him which serves him in excellent stead. How very true. How very tragically true. For them. You can say many things about uh, Rod Serling's work, but the man is always in, in love 
of a good grotesque character. With the, um, the with the his creation of the Fultons, he's gone incredibly overboard, generate creating genuine monsters. The type of people that, well, I suppose exactly the type of people who would brutalize a robot for no apparent reason, really. They just hate each other and take it out on the uh, on Lana Woods character. Um, it's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, there there is elements of Philip K. Dick's uh, story, you know, that kind of uh, do androids dream of electric sheep or iRobot, those kind of things. What makes what stop? What what is the quintessential element that makes something more than just a machine into that? that realm of being human or something different as is in this case what, what stands out us out from everybody else um, you know and also the question of who is who is the master at the end of this you know do we have a right to destroy uh, a machine that we've created I mean the futility of such violence uh, it, that that's interesting too um, the best Role. Um, I mean, you know, in, in its hands, that that couple could have been very, very. I mean, if the the written as character chose anyway, but I think it helps the fact that um, Cloris is able to bring a certain element to it. I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people that listen to podcasts are American, and I don't think you've. I don't know if you had this, but if you get a chance, look up uh, Abigail's party. It's kind of a, a very uh, cult. Uh, 1970s play and it was also a TV play and uh, about a house party where everybody in it is, is basically just really nasty and horrible or, or weak and um, it's, as the story continues it, it becomes more extreme but um, for me that, that house party that's in that store in this story reminds me very much of Abigail's party the type of place that if you were there you'd want to run a mile and obviously the been you know the, the the couple have been massively trolleyed and, and, and overly drunk um Clarice is was, was a very serious actress though she's used to the stage and as such she was quite slow and deliberate and and wanted to make everything perfect all the time um so and obviously it has the exact opposite of night gallery and particularly the script is quite you know it's 20 minutes it's what considered probably one of the shorter episodes well not shorter but the kind of thing they could have got done in a couple of days. Um, so that was a problem. Also, Lana Wood, who's obviously better known for being in, from, in Diamonds Are Forever, incredibly would effectively refuse to hit any of her marks and would wander around the, 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 the stage, kind of the, 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 the TV stage, kind of as if as if she was on the stage, like you know, on a theatrical stage. She, she, <laughs> I could imagine just the, the mountain frustration where you, you get you put you set all these massive cameras up, massive TV cameras, and then she wanders off and wouldn't hit a mark and starts acting somewhere else in the room, expecting everyone to kind of follow her. Um, the biggest problem they had was with makeup, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, there's a quote that's in the uh, Scott Skelton Jim Benson night, wrote say night uh, after hours tour book, which says. Um, from uh, Leonard Engelman. Apparently, originally used quite heavy artificial makeup, but that didn't work very well. He said, I want it to look like plastic, no freckles or imperfections, just a plastic one color look. 
The first day's rushes, however, proved that this first effort was far too white. They looked like ghosts, apparently. It was not a good look, Wood says. The makeup looked horrible and we had to reshoot everything. So next they used a latex makeup and that was not real swell. It would start to move and it gave us a lot of problems. Although, obviously with latex, it's the flexibility that can give for the performers as well. But it looked well enough. Um, it was heavy and I'll be honest with you, I don't think it looks great. I mean, they look slightly artificial, but I don't think it's a clear look. I mean, far better is a lot of the fact that they shine an awful lot of light onto the eyes of the characters, uh, which gives makes, gives them a more otherworldly, ethereal quality. And I think that works far better in truth in the writing that in the in the look than any kind of latex makeup, which is looks a bit fake anyway. Um, it's very easy, I think, to be quite critical of the look of the story. It looks, you know, it's like the old Star Trek thing. It looks like a stage. It doesn't look like it's from the future. But these are criticisms that I don't, are very difficult to level. I mean, it's a, it's a TV program, not some massive budget. And it's 40 years old. So yes, it shows its age. But it's better than say, um, some of some of the other futuristic stories, um, for example, the for example the different ones, which it still looks really just awful with its like corridors and stuff. At least with this, it, there's an element of, you know, I, for me, I, I I see it more as not being a futuristic setting, but like you know, like an alternative world, which obviously very seventies in its stylings. But you know, there's this as well. This is this of this unusual development, rather than trying to place it in like you know the year three thousand or something ridiculous like that, which I don't think works. Um, so it has flaws, 